Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prendle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. On today's episode, we're going to discuss Hoosier hospitality with a focus on how hospitable or inhospitable Hoosiers can be towards new people moving to the state. Our stories focus on two groups who help these newcomers in a time when the rest of the state is not just ambivalent, it's hostile. These stories inspired us to discuss the virtue of courage and the ethics of borders. Before we get started with today's show, here's a note from our partner. We've partnered with Indiana Humanities to produce a series of special Indiana Bicentennial-themed episodes of Examining Ethics. Each episode takes us back to a key moment in Indiana history to look at how Hoosiers have wrestled with that issue over time, as well as the ethical considerations it raises for people everywhere. These episodes are part of Indiana Humanities' Next Indiana Initiative, which invites Hoosiers to think read, and talk about issues and ideas that are shaping the present and future of our state. Learn more at indianahumanities.org. I'm Sandra Burton, one of the producers of the show. And I'm Christian Weishart, the other producer. Indiana has been in the news lately for some controversial policies. This year, the governor and current VP nominee Mike Pence attempted to block Syrian refugees from being resettled in the state something that was determined by a court to be unlawful. Our state is now the first to actually turn away a Syrian refugee family. Pence saying in a press conference today that he simply feels the vetting process for refugees is not thorough enough. Indiana and more than 20 other states announcing objections to accepting Syrian refugees without firm proof they are not terrorists. And some lawmakers seem to be very concerned about illegal immigration to the state even though undocumented immigrants only make up 1.8% of the state's population, way less than some other states. Immigration bill that goes further than anything tried before in the General Assembly will be heard in committee next month. Immigration bills have failed three times before at the State House, but sponsors who believe that the political trends are now on their side are making this one stronger, in some cases like the controversial Arizona law. So we wanted to look into the history of some Hoosiers' attitudes towards immigrants. Is it only recently that Hoosiers have been wary of new people entering the state? Has everyone in Indiana always felt that way? Our story starts in the 1940s. There was this war that you might have heard of before, World War II. And here's a quick refresher for those of you who might have forgotten how World War II went. In 1941, the war had already started over in Europe. But at this point, the U.S. was still refusing to get involved. For a while, the U.S. was perfectly happy watching Europe destroy itself. But then, something happened. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. After Japanese forces bombed Pearl Harbor, the United States declared war on Japan, Germany, and Italy. But today, we're not really talking about World War II. 
or the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We're talking about the reaction to that bombing in the United States. We were scared, really scared of what just happened. So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, most immigrants from Japan settled in communities along the West Coast. Hundreds of thousands of Japanese immigrants and their children made this region of the country their home. And even though these Japanese Americans exhibited no signs of disloyalty to the United States, people began to freak out about their Japanese American neighbors. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which declared that over 100,000 Japanese-American immigrants and their families be evicted from their homes and put into internment camps run by the government. Wait, I know this story already, and I think a lot of our listeners probably know about internment camps. We're not about to debate the ethics of taking innocent people out of their homes and putting them in camps, right? <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. And in fact, in 1982, the United States government officially acknowledged that interning U.S. citizens and legal immigrants was the wrong thing to do, that it was motivated by wartime hysteria rather than sound reasoning. But there's another side of evicting Japanese Americans from their homes on the West Coast that I don't think a lot of people know about. At least I didn't know about it until a few months ago. Then what are we talking about? Okay, so after issuing Executive Order 9066, President Roosevelt formed something called the War Relocation Authority. This was a government agency that, in 1942, was responsible for creating the internment camps and moving Japanese Americans to those camps. By 1943, though, the War Relocation Authority shifted its focus to something called a resettlement program. And the idea here was that instead of interning Japanese Americans in camps, maybe the government could help them resettle in regions like the Midwest. That sounds really messed up. The government gives you two options, go to an internment camp or move across the country. Yeah, a lot of scholars believe that this was the government's way of breaking up larger communities of Japanese Americans and redistributing them throughout the country. But aside from all that, there were still big problems with relocation. Moving across the country to an entirely new region wasn't exactly the easiest thing without the kind of information we have available on the internet today. So Japanese Americans needed help if they were going to move. You also have to remember that Japanese Americans typically did not live in the Midwest before the war. And so they needed some orientation to life in the Midwest. That was a historian we talked to, Nancy Connor. This is Nancy Nakano Connor. She was the director of grants and novel conversations at Indiana Humanities. Nancy helped us understand many of the problems faced by Japanese Americans who were trying to get out of the internment camps. Okay, so the government wanted Japanese Americans to resettle in the Midwest. How exactly did that work? Did the government say, okay, 3,000 people need to resettle in Indiana, 4,000 need to resettle in Ohio, like that? No, the government allowed Japanese Americans to apply to move basically wherever they wanted in the Midwest. But certain places were more hospitable to outsiders than others. 
And unfortunately, Indiana was not one of the more welcoming states when it came to immigrants. Indiana did have a history of mostly German immigration before the war. But even then, the population of Indiana was 92% white and native-born. This means that when Japanese Americans were trying to find homes away from internment camps in the 1940s, not only was Indiana one of the whitest states, it also had a very, very small immigrant population. Indiana was somewhat known for not being a very hospitable place for immigrants. It had a kind of reputation for wanting to keep itself um, kind of the same. So Japanese Americans are trying to escape internment camps on the West Coast to come to the Midwest. And Indiana is one of the states that they could potentially move to. But you and Nancy both said Indiana is not so great at welcoming outsiders. Yeah, according to Nancy, there were lots of people trying to prevent Japanese Americans from resettling in Indiana. But there were also groups that worked to help Japanese Americans move to Indiana from across the country. Many of these were church organizations that already had huge nationwide missionary networks in place. One in particular was a group out of Indianapolis called the Disciples of Christ. And it was the kind of far-reaching network that the Disciples of Christ had that made it possible for them to help Japanese Americans resettle. They had um, churches, mission churches, of Japanese and Japanese Americans that they were familiar with the people. They weren't afraid. They didn't have that kind of war hysteria because they knew the people and had worked with them and realized that these people were harmless, that they were not a dangerous factor because they were um, people they knew. These kind of networks seem to be key to groups who wanted to help out Japanese Americans. So tell me more about these groups. Well, when I was researching this time period, the story that really caught my attention was the plight of Japanese Americans that were in college on the West Coast and had to unenroll from school to be moved to internment camps. That sounds terrible. Yeah, it is. And we spoke with historian Tom Hamm, who told us this story. I am Thomas Hamm. I am professor of history and director of special collections, which means I'm basically the college attic keeper here at Earlham College. Colleges and universities in Indiana were in a special position to be offering these students an easy entry into their communities. It very quickly uh, emerged that if Japanese Americans could be enrolled in colleges that were not on the West Coast and which were not in close proximity to defense plants and facilities where highly sensitive work was taking place, the federal government was willing to um, allow their enrollment. So did a lot of colleges and universities in Indiana end up offering admission to Japanese Americans? Not really. Some tried and it didn't exactly work out, but we'll come back to that. Most schools didn't even attempt it, but there is an important exception. Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana successfully enrolled, wait for it, 24 Japanese American students. Wait, what? 24? That does not sound like a lot. I thought that number sounded pretty low too. But Thomas Ham sent me straight. As late as the 1940s, um, only about 5% of all Americans of college age are actually going on to college. Uh, by the standards of the time, having that many Japanese American students here, um, you know, they would have amounted uh, 
probably to about 5% of the student body. Uh, to most people, that was significant. Okay, that is significant. That's not the only reason they could accept just 24 students. The president of Earlham College, a man named William C. Dennis, realized that his decision to bring Japanese-American students to Richmond, Indiana, would be controversial. There was strong anti-Japanese prejudice, uh, particularly because of Pearl Harbor, but even going back farther than that, uh, the Japanese army had received all kinds of justifiably bad press for its actions in China in the late 1930s. Um, for most Americans in 1941 or 42, it's hard to believe now, but the Japanese probably had a reputation for being more barbaric than the Nazis did in Europe. I mean, this is before knowledge of the concentration camps had become general. So William C. Dennis was worried about having too many Japanese Americans in Richmond, Indiana. He thought he could probably get away with 12 or 15 at any one time, but more than that, uh, in his mind, would have courted trouble. What kind of trouble? Okay, so remember that wartime hysteria that was responsible for evicting Japanese Americans from their homes in the first place? Some Hoosiers felt this hysteria as well. In September of 1942, a number of residents of Richmond, Indiana, were outraged at the presence of Japanese Americans here. The mayor of Richmond, who was facing re-election, had originally been supportive, but he very quickly backtracked when the presence of Japanese Americans turned into an election issue. Um, a secretary on campus reported that a delivery man bringing some office supplies told him that he was delivering poison that could be used on those Japs. And there was a lodge here in Richmond, the United Order of Junior American Mechanics, that passed a series of resolutions which uh, said, in effect, that Earlham was committing treason and giving aid and comfort to the enemy by bringing the enemy into our community. That's really frustrating to me because these were Japanese Americans, as in they were from the U.S., yeah. In fact, two-thirds of Japanese Americans on the West Coast were United States citizens. But remember, Indiana didn't exactly have the best reputation for being welcoming to outsiders, even if they were citizens. There were enough big cities close enough that native-born Hoosiers could see the impact of large-scale immigration, and generally they didn't like it. They didn't like all of these people coming in with strange languages and strange customs. They didn't like the fact that uh, almost all of these immigrants coming in were not Protestants. They were Roman Catholics. They were Eastern Orthodox. They were Jews. They didn't like the fact, in many cases, that uh, alcohol consumption was a part of the uh, culture of these immigrant groups. So if you want to understand why in the 1920s, Indiana is the northern stronghold of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you look at reactions to immigration. 
There's no question that the Ku Klux Klan is racist. It's anti-black. But if you look at its rhetoric and uh, what it's denouncing in the 1920s, it is equally against immigrants and everything that they represent. But according to Thomas Hamm, not everyone in Richmond felt negatively about outsiders. On the other hand, for every manifestation of prejudice like this that you find, as far as our documentary record goes, we find another expression of support. The Earlham Post, the campus newspaper, when it noted these protests, simply dismissed them as manifestations of bigotry and said these are the same people who 20 years ago were marching around in Ku Klux Klan robes and hoods. You know, they made the connection to that sort of uh, ethnic bigotry. Whoa. Yeah. This is a striking contrast to places like our own DePaul University, where we accepted a single Japanese-American, but he had to leave after a few months because of the horrible response from the surrounding community. Wow. It seems like these colleges are taking a risk with accepting these students. And it's not because the students are a risk at all, but it's because the towns that the colleges are in could be pretty hostile towards the Japanese-Americans. So I guess I'm wondering, why did Earlham take that risk? The first thing to understand is that in the five decades prior to World War II, Earlham usually had at least two or three Japanese students enrolled at all times. Earlham had long-standing ties with Japan that went back to the 1880s when an Earlham alumnus, Joseph Cassand, opened the uh, Friends Girls School in Tokyo. He was, in effect, the first Quaker missionary in Japan. The second thing that's operating here is self-interest. The president of Earlham at the time, William C. Dennis, was a hard-headed, pragmatic, practical man. He knew that the college was going to be facing significant financial problems as a result of the war, since almost all of the male students would either be doing alternative service uh, as conscientious objectors, or they would be going into the armed forces. So income was going to be down significantly. Japanese-American students could help meet uh, part of that shortfall. But Erlam wasn't acting purely out of self-interest. They had more than money on their minds. There was a sense that this was simply an extension of what Erlam was supposed to be about. Erlam, as a Quaker school, was supposed to be committed to developing goodwill and brotherhood among human beings. So for many friends, um, advocating on behalf of people who had the uh, faces of almost all of the rest of the country or the rest of the world uh, turned against them was simply an extension of living out the gospel. And it would also be showing the American people that Earlham at least was committed to building a better world.
This special Indiana Bicentennial episode of Examining Ethics has been produced in partnership with Indiana Humanities. Indiana Humanities connects people, opens minds, and enriches lives by creating and facilitating programs that encourage Hoosiers to think, read, and talk. Learn more at indianahumanities.org. We were struck by the courage displayed by Earlham College in helping Japanese Americans resettle in Indiana, especially because it was a time when hysteria gripped the rest of the state. So what is courage and why is it important, especially when it comes to thinking about immigrants and the descendants of immigrants? Andy, Sandra, and I sat down recently to discuss this. I think a lot of people, their first thought about what courage is, is that it's just being fearless or not having a lot of fear. Uh, But I think just a little bit of reflection on that reveals that that can't be what courage is. There's lots of interesting counterexamples. My favorite is take a soldier who like throws himself on the grenade to save the rest of the platoon. He could be incredibly fearful, but that's like a paradigm of courage. So it's not that he was fearless. It's that he did something uh, in spite of his fear. So I guess my question as it relates to the stories that we've been talking about with the Japanese-American relocation um, has to do with not necessarily like having courage or like what courage is, but like if you have courage, what are you supposed to do with it? Um, So with the Disciples of Christ and Earlham College, um, the reason that they could act courageously is because they had those like global missionary networks that allowed them to shepherd Japanese Americans to Indiana to either a college or just to be kind of relocated here. So they had courage and the ability to do something about it. So I guess what I'm wondering about, especially something that I've been thinking about with like the Syrian refugee crisis is like, I would love to take in a refugee family. And I think we could, I think we would financially be able to do it. But I can't. Like, I literally can't. So so what am I supposed to do in the face, or what is an individual supposed to do in the face of, like, these bigger problems, right, where your ability or your inability to act courageously kind of gets in the way? I think that to say that someone has courage but, but can't exercise it, um, I mean, there are some views about courage where that's just not even possible. So if courage is not being fearless, if courage is doing something in the face of your fear. Uh, a traditional view about what that is, is you you don't let your fear control you and prevent you from from doing what you think you ought to do. So, but like in, in that analogy, the situation is there's a wall between you and a grenade. And even uh, no matter how okay. much exactly. you want to throw your body on top of the grenade, you're, and you're throwing yourself at it and flopping off. Right, right. <laughs> you so just you're, simply cannot okay, now break this, through a wall. This makes sense. So Christians... And like Mike Pence is my wall, right? right. Like, well, not just Mike Pence. So but, the yeah. United States in general actually does not allow individual families to sponsor refugee families, unlike Canada. Right. Okay. So the analogy is like I'm on the side of... I'm, I'm over here. I see the grenades there and I like... I'm being prevented from getting over there by a fence or something. Yes. And you have all the courage in the world and you really want to. You want to jump on that yeah. grenade. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Well, I, I don't I think you'd tear down the wall or try. <laughs> but is that <laughs> <laughs> So people can only be courageous if they tear down wall like do things that are physically impossible to do. I don't think that's I don't think that's true. I no, you're right. I will now, I'm taking back what I said. I don't, I don't think you can only be courageous. Okay. If, so uh, 
another view about virtues is you can, you can have them even if they're, they're like dispositions to act in certain ways and you can have them even if you don't have the ability to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So you can be an honest person, but if you live on an island and you're not surrounded by anybody, you can't exemplify it. You, you've never had an opportunity to tell the truth um, because you've just never been around anybody. I think courage is like that too. People can be courageous, but if they're prevented from showing it, it doesn't mean they're not courageous. It just, they were never in a circumstance to let that disposition come out. And here in Indiana, we, like a lot of people have put signs in their front yard saying Hoosiers welcome refugees. So like maybe that's an example of trying to exemplify courage without actually being able to do anything. Well, that in and of itself can be an act of courage, right? I mean, you you take on enormous risk. If you live in a society where a lot of people disagree with your moral opinions, it can be costly socially to even express them, yeah. right? To even to, to put that sign in your front yard would incur certain risks if a vast majority of people around you disagreed with you. That's a really good example of like what an individual could do to act courageously in the face of kind of like systemic walls, so to speak, or systemic problems. And I'm wondering too, like if we could also kind of twist my example and and be like, well, You know, if it was these global, bigger community networks that enabled somebody to act courageously, maybe the solution isn't me, Christian Weishart, trying to be like, what can I do? Maybe the solution is like, what can I do with my community? You know, like maybe if we band together, we could figure out a bigger solution to this problem. So this brings up a really interesting question about why thinking about courage is important and why courage itself is important. Your obstacles aren't like, walls that just happen to be there, the obstacles you're describing are largely there because other people are afraid. Other people are afraid of what might happen if we let other people in. If we could get people thinking about courage as a virtue and not thinking about courage as being fearless, but thinking about courage as not letting your fear dictate your behavior. If more people thought that way, if more people were just reflective on am I letting my fear take control of me, then the kinds of obstacles you're talking about might not be as strong. I just wonder if it's reductive to say that only fear is standing in the way between people doing the right thing. And I think that if you try to play devil's advocate, maybe people would say that liberals are just liberals who are interested in having more immigration or accepting refugees or any of those things. Um, I think maybe people would say that we're letting our fear of not appearing politically correct get in the way of our safety, you know? Like, I think there's a way you can make everybody look afraid of something. Oh, right. This diagnosis is something that someone could use no matter where they stood on the political spectrum. I think that's yeah, what your that, point is. That, mm-hmm. So, you know, we could look at people who uh, vote a certain way and say, well, you're afraid of that group, and they could say, well, we're not the ones being afraid. We're the ones who are rationally looking at what we need to do. And what we rationally need to do is protect these interests. And you're only supporting the opposite opinion because you're afraid of being perceived as not politically correct or something like yeah. that. Both sides can play this game is what you're saying. So then does that destroy like this this virtue of courage or or is it is it still fine? I think somebody is right on one of these sides. Right? Somebody, somebody's right, right, that, that somebody is letting their fear get in the way. I think what would be good 
is if everybody were just taking a step back and saying, am I in that position? Am I letting my fear dictate how I decide to vote or what policies I support? And then you just sort of try and reason from that perspective. I think with regards to immigration in general, I think everybody not only needs to take a step back and think about their fear, but they also just need to take a step back and think about race um, and what role race might be playing in their thought about immigration, because um, it totally matters, right, Um, with really any immigrant population. Um, So an example that I found fascinating from World War II is that um, very few German Americans were put in internment camps, right? This is obviously an issue of race. And I think it's the same with when we think about immigration from Latin American countries or from Mexico. Um, I think race plays like a really big role in how we think about that. Um, And I think that's something that we need to kind of make more explicit um, in our conversations about immigration. I actually think issues about courage and issues about race, like you mentioned, are completely intertwined because I think a lot of the issues with race relations have to do with fears of other groups and letting those fears get the better of you. So, I mean, you're absolutely right that issues of race are important when thinking about immigration. And and this is all the more reason why courage is important because issues of race are largely issues about courage. So when we were talking about the virtue of courage and how it related to issues of immigration, we noticed we were kind of ignoring a bigger question. Yeah, we realized we hadn't even talked about whether states have a right to prevent people from entering its borders in the first place. So we asked ourselves, do states have a right to prevent people from entering its borders? And just to be clear, we're talking about moral rights, not necessarily legal rights. Being a state, like what's the point of being a state? It's so that you and a group of people can get together and sort of self-determine how things are going to go within your borders. And there's a kind of common argument that if you're going to be a state, a sovereign state, and be able to decide how you and another group of people are going to decide what goes on within your borders, part of that freedom is supposed to be freedom of association. Um, But freedom of association just is deciding who gets to be part of the state or not. And so there's a thought that it doesn't make sense to have anything like states that have freedom of association unless they have a right to decide like who gets to come in and who gets to stay. I think that that's good and true to a point, but I think also individuals also should have a right to self-determine. And if an individual's right to self-determine and live where they want to um, conflicts with a state's right to self-determine, I'm just like, I don't have a good reason for why, but I feel like the individual should win. (laughs) I actually think that's a really good response, right? I mean, you know, we like what's so sacrosanct about a state's rights? States states are just groups of individuals. It, it doesn't make sense for states to have rights unless it's a fundamental fact that individuals have rights. That's a good way to argue, you know, maybe individual rights trump states' rights. Here's another consideration in favor of individuals' rights to freedom of association trumping states' rights. Look at our current exceptions to immigration law or where we tend to be most lenient on immigration law, it has to do with things like family relationships, right? It has to do with this idea that even the United States should not be in the business of preventing a mother from associating with her own children or associating with her husband or wife, right? So there's evidence that underlying our current immigration law is there's something sacrosanct about individual rights to freedom of association. So I think we we kind of loaded the question, right? Our question was like, do states have a right to prevent people from entering their borders? And this idea of state is like very colonial. (laughs) 
Um, and so I wonder if we can complicate it by saying more generally, like, do groups of people inhabiting certain geographical areas have the right to prevent other groups of people or other individuals from coming into those same areas? I actually think that's a good way to think about it. And I think it poses problems for this freedom of association argument. Because if you look at the way state lines are drawn, they're just drawn because groups of people were powerful enough to to draw the lines and stop people from crossing them. So it's actually worth taking a step back and saying, what would give any group of people a right to even begin to draw a line around a region of space and say, no one gets to cross? Yeah, it seems insane when you think about how arbitrary these lines are in the first place. So there are a lot of people who think that an important thing for governments to be doing is distributing goods or benefits fairly and equally and providing equal opportunity to access those goods. We tend to think of those things as applying to food and water and access to education. But some people are starting to think, well, why shouldn't this apply to things like ability to move around? If you think that the ability to move around is a good like those other things, you're hard-pressed to say the state should provide equal opportunity to access things like education and water and not provide equal opportunity to just be able to move around. And now it starts looking like you get this kind of equal opportunity argument for no borders at all. I like that argument when I'm thinking about like individuals, right? Like I think it should I think it should be possible for an individual or an individual family to like move wherever they want to. But the question becomes like how do we think about it when it's like big groups of people moving wherever they want to, like say big groups of people from England <laughs> moving to you know, what is now Massachusetts in like the 17th century? Like what rights did they have to inhabit that land and even kind of push other people out of that land? So yeah, it's just like a super hard question to to think about, right? Yeah. But I think a way to think about it is the way you think about other kinds of rights that we restrict in cases where if everybody did this all at once, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't allow it, right? You should have a right to be in a public park. But if a million people decided to descend on a public park all at the exact same moment, it wouldn't be so absurd to think that the park rangers should go in and say, okay, some of you have to leave. There's a limit. Who gets to stay and who gets to leave? What happens when there are like millions of people who need a home all of a sudden, right? Like what happens then? Like, and who gets to determine where those millions of people go? Those millions of people, do they get to determine where they go? Or do the geographical areas where other people might be able to take them in, are they the ones that get to determine who comes in or who doesn't come in? If you go open borders, you're hard-pressed to say what seems wrong about certain, like, like invading armies, basically, right? I mean, it's like if it's open borders, then it's like 100,000 people can just show up in a state one day. And, but that seems weird, right? Like we should be able to prevent like a military force from entering. And I don't want to say the pilgrims were military force, but they were like a civilian military force. They came in and just started laying down 
laws and restrictions and, and all sorts of things. But I think it's one thing to just say people are welcome. It's another thing to say that they're welcome and they have the right to just start dictating how all of these resources in this area are going to be managed and maintained and distributed. Yeah, like there's this interesting question of like vulnerability, right? Like to what extent are the parties vulnerable? So to me, it seems right to say, yeah, like let's take in as many Syrian refugees as we possibly can. Like let's do it. Let's help them. But it doesn't seem right to be like, open the border in Africa and let anybody take those diamonds, right? Or let anybody scoop up all those resources. Right. The people who feel pressure toward open border style arguments, they get there by imagining what, uh, like if you could decide what the world would be like without knowing how you were going to be born into that world. You didn't know what your abilities were going to be. You didn't know where you were going to be born. You didn't know what kinds of things were going to be valuable. Uh, what They ask you, what would you want the world to be like? And they say that the world would be basically a place where even the least well-off are going to be okay. And how does the least well-off be okay? Well, they're going to have access to water and food and shelter if they can't afford it or if their abilities aren't good enough to get them jobs. Um, and this is where they say like, we should be, we should have reasonably, you could say we should have reasonably open borders. If people are about to die and their only way of getting food and shelter is to be let in somewhere else, I think we would all agree we would want the world to be that way. But I also think we would all, and this would answer the resource hogging question, I also think we would want the world to be such that a large group of well-off powerful people couldn't just roll in and disrupt a local economy. And we would want rules and regulations to prevent that kind of stuff happening. So um, I think the thing that pushes people to open borders pushes them to think that we'd want to have policies in place that allow in Syrian refugees. But I think it would also push them to want to have rules and regulations that prevent powerful people from coming in and doing the kinds of things you talk about. But then is it still an open border if... Um... I think it's misleading to call it open border. Yeah. The ethical issues involving borders are incredibly contentious. Even in our own discussion, we had disagreements. But for me, I think the really interesting thing is to examine the way our fear might put pressure on us to act without thinking about what is right. Yeah, and that's so important for thinking about race, too. Asking yourself, am I thinking or acting this way because I'm afraid of this group? Yeah, and what those two issues have in common, immigration and race. I think fear plays a huge role in both of those. It seems like with issues where fear might be playing a big role in your thinking, you need to really pay attention to both sides of the arguments. Yeah, because if fear is pointing you in one direction, arguments that point in that direction are going to seem better than they might otherwise if fear weren't in play. So if you care about courage, a very important thing to do in the face of fear is just to sit down and examine it.
before you go, we're hoping to hear from you for an upcoming episode. We want to know how you think about voting. To be clear, we're not concerned with who you are voting for or have voted for in the past. We just want to know what you think about voting itself. So please call us at 765-653-5014 and leave a five-minute voicemail and tell us how you think about voting. If you don't know where to start, you could tell us, do you think everyone should vote? Do you think it's okay to vote for someone you know has no chance of winning the election? What do you think about people not voting because they don't like any of the candidates? That's just to get you started. We're interested in anything you think about how people should vote in our version of democracy. Again, the number to call and leave a five-minute voicemail is 765-653-5014. You can find these instructions on our social media as well. Thanks so much. We can't wait to hear from you. One of the things you all can do if you like what you're hearing from us, or if you feel like you're getting something from our show, is to tell a friend about us. Word of mouth really helps. You can also help us out by rating us on iTunes, even if you don't use iTunes to listen to the show. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, visit our show notes for this episode at examiningethics.org. When you visit, be sure to sign up for our newsletter you'll be entered into our monthly book giveaway. For updates about the podcast, interesting links, and more, follow us on Twitter at Examining Ethics. For information about our partner, check out indianahumanities.org. And don't forget, we have two more episodes coming up with them. Oops. (laughs) Sorry. We have one more episode. (laughs) We all saw that train coming. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Ready? I'm ready. For information about our partner, check out indianahumanities.org. And don't forget, we have one more episode coming up with them. Hi, this is the operations manager of Prindle, Linda Clute, and I'm here outside of the Institute to read the credits. Examining Ethics with Andy Cullison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, with special support on this show from Indiana Humanities. Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart produce the show. Special thanks to Kira Amstutz and Leah Namias from Indiana Humanities. Our intern for this episode was Jessica Keister. Our logo was created by Evie Brocious. Thank you to the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media for providing our recording room. Our music is by Corey Gray, The Blue Dot Sessions, Jason Leonard, and Kai Engel, and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of Indiana Humanities, DePaul alumni, Friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support.